We are looking at the first three verses of chapter 13. You will also need to know where Jeremiah and Numbers are. Numbers is before Deuteronomy. Jeremiah is right after the wisdom books. Isaiah. Let's have a word of prayer. And we'll read the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you because it is all about you. Father, I pray that our hearts will hear. Father, I pray that I will hear. Help me. I beg you. Help my friends, my brothers, my sisters to hear and to know. Father, may we walk in a manner worthy of the amazing privilege that has been graced to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Christ, in Christ alone. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We're coming out of a thought in the end of chapter 12, verse 31, of a more excellent way. A church in Corinth was in need of a more excellent way. Uh, I saw an outline on chapter 13 that, and I can't remember if it was Linsky or Lightfoot or MacArthur or Zodiades. So whoever it was who gave me this outline or I read this outline, um, they did a pretty good job. The prominence of love, the properties of love, the permanence of love, and the preeminence of love. That's chapter 13. You can tell I didn't come up with that. I do not even know what those words mean. But I do know this. Love has to be important. It must be, we must understand its properties. It overrules everything and it is above everything. They're my outline. <laughs> Mine doesn't seem to work as well as theirs. But I want to talk about this love because it is supernatural. And I've shared with you that this love is a believer when he walks in the Spirit. He or she walks in the Spirit. The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. The Spirit then produces the gifts that come out of it. And if you do not have love, though you are gifted in every way, you are nothing. The problem with the church in Corinth is the problem with the church in America today is that it is self-centered. And if you are self-centered, you do not have this love. You are not producing this love. I'm not saying you're not saved. But you are basically producing zero. Last week we looked at it that if I have speech and it is without love, you're just noisy. And that's fascinating because I was reading some stuff on this down here where it says it become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And I thought, you know, that's interesting he put that in there. I'm not sure why. And then I started looking around, and I found some history on the area of Corinth. And there was two major religious influence, Shablia and uh, Diametris. Those were the two predominant religious sects that were in Corinth, and there's great temples to both of them. And what I found was, is fascinating, is that the worship there was culminated and would climax uh, either through um, wine or an opiate, uh, and it would climax into this ecstatic babble where everybody was in some kind of gibberish, and it would be accompanied by clanging cymbals, the smashing of gongs. And it's funny because Paul kind of stuck that in there and says, when you go about trying to operate your spiritual gift in your own energy in the flesh, no matter how good you are at it, no matter how far it goes, if love isn't the motive behind it, it's the same as pagan rituals. That's a fascinating statement to a church. I mean, that would be like next weekend we start burning incense and cutting chickens' necks. For Jesus. And basically what he's saying is, is when you are in the flesh, you're no different than a pagan. You're no different than a pagan. Paganism within the walls of the church. Hmm. I.e. the title of what I've been teaching on. Love is important. Wouldn't you say? I mean, we wouldn't do that, would we? Well, maybe you would. No, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't mind chicken, but I prefer barbecue. Love is important. How important? Christ says, love your enemies. Well, how important is loving my enemy? Well, he says, do good to those who persecute you. Okay, so love, and we've defined it over the last few weeks, and we've been looking at different aspects of it, is an act of self-sacrificial service towards someone who does not necessarily care for you. Jesus says, this love is this way, I will wash your feet. So it has to be more than an emotion, it's more than romance. You don't go out and romance your enemies. You do not have emotion. Well, maybe you do have emotion to those who persecute you. An act of self-sacrifice on behalf of another. Jesus said it like this, like your Father who is in heaven. Hmm. It's an interesting thought, don't you think? He's given us something that we can't do. Really? I thought he said the love of God has been poured in our hearts. He says here, and what we looked at last week, is, is if I speak into tons of men or an angel talk, he says, if I have the best speech on earth, if I have the best speech in heaven, it doesn't matter if there is no love. John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, was spoken of one time. Uh, one of the greatest preachers who ever walked the planet said that during his sermons, it was very common for people to, quote, lie on the ground crying out for mercy. 
at the power of his exposition of the Word of God. This is a guy who studied and preached by candlelight. We seek elegance, don't we? We seek eloquent speaking. We want to hear it. I've heard people make fun of the way I talk. Dude, you should have seen me 20 years ago. I've gotten better. We want the eloquence of speech that turn the wills of men, that capture the minds, that capture the hearts, that motivate us. And you know what? You can have all of that, and if you have no love, it accomplishes nothing. Absolutely nothing. And then in verse 2, he says, you can have the best speech on the world, and I'm going to get a little more a little farther, a little more specific than the gift of languages or angel talk. He says here, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I shared with my Sunday school class, I don't think you guys need to hear this. I do not believe this message is for you, any of you. So I'll see you. Uh, nobody's buying that. Darn. I think this is for me. Solely and wholly for me. It's a gift of prophecy. Speaking forth. You know what? I have the gift of prophecy. It's my primary color, my gift. It's prophecy. You know what? I, and I should be happy about it. Chapter 14 says that it is hailed as the greatest gift to possess. Why is it the greatest gift? Because it is the proclamation of God's truth in the language of the people. Prophecy is the gift of revelation and reiteration. If you look at the sermons of Peter, Paul, and Stephen, sometimes they're given new revelation, sometimes they're repeating what was already given. You know what I do? I repeat what has already been given. And yet if we yet if I do it without love, it is zero. It means nothing. Speak before to declare the truth of God. To, detra- to declare what God has said. To bring the word of heaven to earth. To draw eternity into time. That's the gift of prophecy. I wrote a little star down here. It says, that's a tremendous gift. <laughs> It is. But I want you to think about something in this text. There's a phrase that is in the Bible that many of us miss. We read it and we... It's okay. And it's out of... Don't even go to it. You've heard it. I guarantee it. And this is my greatest enemy. My greatest battle. I have no greater foe than this. Okay? So if you want to pray for me, you pray this way. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We proclaim Him sharing what? The truth in love. Okay? You know what my biggest battle is? Departing from the truth and indifference towards people. You think I'm kidding? 
Look at the preachers today. Turn the TV on. No, I don't do that. There's a balance. There's a balance. I know many preachers today who have a great love for the people and have no truth, nor do they give out truth. And they say they don't give out truth because I have a greater love for the people. I know some who have this great amount of truth and could care less about people. My single greatest fight that I fight on a continual moment-by-moment basis is to keep that balance. I guarantee you that unless you have been a preacher, unless you have the gift of prophecy, you have no understanding of what I'm saying. Do I study or do I take care of the deeds of self-sacrifice? Preaching and people. I know some in the name of love for the people water down what they say. And that is not really love. Love without truth doesn't protect the hearer from error. Albert Barnes wrote this one time. Albert Barnes preached and wrote during the 1800s. Um, beginning and conclusion of what you know as the Civil War. And I quote Albert Barnes saying, Too many do not feed the flock, but fleece it. And if you don't know what fleecing the flock is, um, shame on you. How many do I see in the pulpits that are there for fame? How many are there for power, prestige? How many are there for personal gain? How many do it for money? How many do it as a vocation? How many do it to the highest bidder? Do you know there's a common teaching that goes on in the Southern Baptist Convention of Colorado that says you put your time in here so you can get a church in Texas because church, the Southern Baptist churches in Texas are the best paying churches in the United States. You know... It's very difficult to balance these two. Extremely difficult. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it doesn't ever quit. And what I've learned in my years is that many, maybe even most Christians, don't know who's good and who isn't. You don't believe me? Check out Christian radio or check out Christian television. How are they being financed? And I think the big emphasis is that most Christians are untaught. They don't know. They don't know. But when I think about the gift of prophecy, I think about a gift that is called by God to prophesy, to speak God to people. And yet you have to love the people, whoever they are, or it's zero. I found something fascinating. If you would, please, turn with me to the book of Numbers. That's where all the mathematical equations are. You can't miss it. It's God's arithmetic. If you would go to chapter 24. It's a fascinating text. 
An amazing text, actually. Numbers 24, we'll begin at verse 15. It says here, he took up his discourses. Everybody there, I want you to read this for yourself because this is amazing. You know this man. He took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. The oracle of, verse 16, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. You know who he's talking to? Balaam. Who's talking to him? God is. What is God saying? You are my prophet. Who? Balaam. Balaam. Look what he says in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the foreheads of Moab and tear down all the sons of Seth. You know what that is? Prophecy of Messiah. Who is saying it? Balaam. Have you ever thought of Balaam, a prophet of God? Did he write the little book? He would be a minor prophet? Look at chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel remained in Sittim, the people began to play the whore with the daughters of Moab. He has received a gift, Balaam has. He has received an anointing. He has been given a vision. He has heard the words of God. He has spoke forth the words of God. He's gifted. He is called. He's pronouncing Messiah. And then it says, Israel played the harlot. You know what that is, right? I'm a prophet. I know how that works. I preached the word and the people didn't listen. Really? He told the people of Messiah. Go over to chapter 31, verse 16. Why did Israel play the harlot? Why did Israel follow after the Moabite women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through what? The counsel of who? The counsel of the prophet of God named Balaam. Moabite women. And they sought the counsel of the prophet, and the prophet gave them counsel. Why? Why? Because the Moabite women sought Balaam out. They knew that he was a prophet of God. He knew truth. He spoke truth, but he didn't love the people. They offered him money. Balaam, how much do you want to corrupt the people of Israel? 
Did you see that? A man called, gifted, empowered by God, was bought off. Look at verse 8 of 31. They killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rikam, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Then what does it say? They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. Gifted by God, given truth by God, spoke forth truth of God in the power of God, without love, zero. He died by the sword. He did not love the people. He did not love the people. He did not love his people. He did not have the balance, the truth in love. Jesus put it this way in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospels, 21, 22, and 23. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Counterfeit prophets. And he says, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I want you to think with me for a second on this because... You need to ponder this. I told you this message is for me. But I ain't letting you off the hook. I'm sharing. I truthfully read this and it scares me to death. I don't want to be a zero. I don't want to stand there and hand him a handful of ashes and say, look, oops, but the cash was good. But you who are saved this day have a responsibility in the body of Christ. Do you really love the people you speak to about Christ? Let me be specific. Do you do deeds of self-sacrifice for them? Unless you have done the deeds of self-sacrifice, ask yourself, have you earned the right to speak the truth? Sacrifice on their behalf. I, I can ask a really simple question. Did you pray for them? See, one of the things that I've learned the hard way, the power that is behind the mes- message is its motive. Why am, you, why am I doing it? What is my motive behind it? When I share truth with somebody, what is my motive? To cut them up? To show them how stupid they are? Show them their error? Show them their fallenness? Why do I do it? What is the motive behind when I share truth? Now, I, I'm using this as in personal pronouns, but you know what? Hold a mirror up. Because if the motive is wrong, then the message is empty. I don't care what you share. The motive is the love of God in my heart. It's the power of the love of God. 
I showed you Balaam. Here's a man who has truth, who has a calling, who has an anointing, had visions. I ain't had visions. Not since some bad pastrami. Back in my lost days, LSD, I seen some visions. None of them were God. And none of them told me to go do anything. Balaam had visions. He had prophesied Messiah. And we can all look at that. And we can all look at it and say, you know what? I think about Balaam and his donkey is given more credit in the ministry than he is. You know what that means, right? Truth without love is zero. I want to take you to one that... Let's go to Jeremiah, chapter 1. Chapter 1 is where we'll start. We're going to cruise through the whole book. It's all right. We have lunch waiting. What does God's love look like in the gift of prophecy? Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, now you guys who don't like predestination and all the rest of it, ignore that verse. Okay? I just looked at it. If you don't like that, just you don't like God making choices, then just that's Old Testament. It's Old Testament. Okay. I read that verse and said, and what choice does Jeremiah get in this? I look read that and say, huh, great guy. Hard ministry. Verse six. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Jeremiah says, You know what? I'm an infant in understanding. I don't know how I can't do this. I'm not educated. I don't do the parsing as well as I should. The didactic event of the preaching event I am no good at. My theology is a little thin. That's what he's saying. Verse 6. Because I'm young. Verse 7. But the Lord said unto me, Do not say I'm youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And, I, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Cool. I don't even have to study. <laughs> I just go, open my mouth, out it comes. Verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You know what he just said there? I'm going to give you all these things to say, and you're going to speak it, and the more you speak it, the uglier it's going to get. Sign me up. The Lord stretched out His hand. He touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, verse 9, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to 
pluck up and break down and to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. Now let me tell you something. You don't believe in expository preaching. You got to deal with verse 10. You guys don't like preaching. Scratch that one out. Because that says there, you're going to be over nations. You are going to be over kingdoms. You will to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. How are you going to do that? Speaking my words. You ain't going to do it through music. You ain't going to do it through drama. You ain't going to do it through really cool music. You're going to do it through the foolishness of preaching. The greatest verse in the whole of Bible on the power of preaching. Right there, verse 10. What stands in that? I can pluck it up. I can tear it down. I can destroy it. I can put it over nations. I can put it over kingdoms. I can build with it and I can plant with it. It all accomplishes the same thing. Drop down to verse 16. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all of their wickedness, and thereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Oh. Try to walk that one through. Verse 17. I like this. This is God speaking to the prophet. I'm a prophet. I like this. What's it say? Gird up your loins. Arise. Speak to them. All that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them. Or I will what? Dismay you before them. There's the balance. You better have the truth. If not, I'll make you look as silly as they do. Don't be dismayed. Do not be afraid. Look at verse 18. I love these next two verses. They're phenomenal. Behold, I have made you today as a fortified city. I have truth. I'm fortified. As a pillar of iron, walls of bronze, against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, and to the princes, and to the priests, and to all the people of the land, they will fight against you. They will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Yeah. I'm a pillar of iron, wall, bronze. Mess with me. I'm delivered. Okay? But there's a fascinating thing happens. Chapter 4. Now, Jeremiah, he's been in the ministry now four chapters. Okay? Which means, as a prophet, guess what? The feedback has started. They're bringing their concern, the style of your ministry, the way you phrase things. You didn't look at me right. You, he's starting to get feedback. Verse 19. This is the spirit of the prophet who has love. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh my soul, the sound, the trumpet, the war alarm. Basically what he's saying is, you know what? Babylon's coming. And my soul is grieved because of the love that he has for the people. My heart hurts. It's beaten wrong. I'm having palpitations. Why? 
people aren't listening. And his soul is grieved by his love for these people. Go to chapter 8. Verses 18 and 19. Yeah, 20. My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. He basically said, I think I'm having a heart attack. Behold, listen. The cry of the daughter of... Who? My people. From a distant land. Why? You're going into captivity. Going to a distant land, the Babylonians. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images and foreign idols? Harvest is past, summer is ended. Then look what he says right next. Did you read that? What does he say? We are not saved. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's not saved? Who does he say? We are not saved. Well, let me ask you a question. Is Jeremiah saved? Dude, if he ain't saved, ain't none of us getting in. He's saved. Who's identifying with? His people. Whom he is so in love with that it's causing his heart to hurt. He grieves. His heart is making weird beats because of the people that he identifies with. It's a total identification with the pain of the people. We looked at this, the interdependence of the body of Christ. When the body hurts, who hurts? When the body rejoices, who rejoices? pain of the people. Jeremiah was saved, but he can't separate himself from the people or his pain. Look around, brothers and sisters. We are all responsible in the body of Christ. Look around. You know, right now, there is some tremendous heartache going on in this church. Right now. Do you know about it? Do you even know about it? Do you gain the privilege to teach, to speak? If I don't know the pain, how are you identifying with those people? You know what? He, let's read this. Verse 21. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismayed has taken hold of me. There's no balm in Gilead. There's no physician there. Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Let me ask you a question. You ever wept over the body of Christ? You know what? This man has a broken heart. He has tears and it goes all the way through chapter 23. This is a shepherd who has truth and love.
why they call him the weeping prophet. Israel went into captivity. Israel would not heed his warnings. Israel, turn, turn back to your God. Turn back to Yahweh. And they went merrily along to their little idols. And God said, fine. Babylonians will take you. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 verse 19 said, I ministered with tears to you in Ephesus. In Romans, he says, I wept over Israel. Second Corinthians, I wept over carnal Christians. In Acts 20, he wept over the influence of false teachers. He, in Corinthians, he says, and my daily concerns for the church. He has the gift of prophecy. He had love. How important is love? Balaam and Jeremiah. That's how important love is. It ain't getting a little bowl thing and washing your feet. It's self-sacrifice to earn the right to speak. If I do not have that, you don't do it. You and I have been called to share the truth in love. You must work to know the truth. You must love to earn the privilege to share that truth. And without it, wood, hay, and stubble. It's my message. Father, help us. Father, help me. Father, put the heart of Jeremiah in me. I beg you. I beg you. Father, help us who gather here called by your name to know the urgency of the day privilege we have with your truth and the love that has been poured into our hearts that we would literally hang on a cross and asking those who would crucify us that the charge not be held against them. Father, no man can do that. Overwhelm us with your presence. We may walk in a manner worthy of your high calling to the glory of He, glory of He who died for us. Help us, Father. Help us. In Christ's name, amen.